I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 85, we read How America Fractured into Four Parts, an article by George Packer, published in 2021. George Packer was born in 1960 in Santa Clara, California, the son of two Stanford professors. Graduated from Yale in 1982 and served in the Peace Corps before becoming a writer. Packer was a columnist for Mother Jones and the staff writer for The New Yorker from 2003 to 2018. He now writes for The Atlantic and has published 11 books. All right, so Packer starts out by saying, Through much of the 20th century, the two political parties had clear identities and told distinct stories. I'm not entirely sure that's true, but let's just go with it. The Republicans spoke for those who wanted to get ahead, and the Democrats spoke for those who wanted a fair shake. Republicans emphasized individual enterprise, and Democrats emphasized social solidarity, eventually including black people and abandoning the party's commitment to Jim Crow. But unlike today, the two parties were arguing arguing over the same recognizable country. This arrangement held until the 1960s, still within living mem- memory. The two parties reflected a society that was less free than today, less tolerant and far less diverse with fewer choices, but with more economic equality, more shared prosperity, and more political cooperation. But since then, he says, the two parties have just about traded places, which is interesting and some uh, some thoughts we've had in prior podcasts as well. By the turn of the millennium, Democrats were becoming the home of the affluent professionals, while the Republicans were starting to sound like populist insurgents. We have to understand, he says, this exchange in order to grasp how we got to where we are. And that is kind of the preface for he sees America divided into four general parts. And I think it's going to be pretty interesting. We're going to go through all four of these. I'm not sure that it actually captures uh, everything, but it certainly gives us a, a sense for, I think, it, uh, I think it gives us a good description of kind of the, the lay of the land right now. I remember studying kind of modern history, like the 1960s when I was in college. And I remember thinking, how could you have such different people in the Republican Party? You know, you had liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans who didn't seem to have much in common. You had liberal Democrats and Southern conservative Democrats that didn't seem to have much in common. And I always wondered, how would that even come about? And of course, you know, the more you read, you kind of see. But I think we're in the middle of that right now. You know, he's he's saying that the, the parties are switching places. I think a better way to describe it is, the parties are evolving in different ways, and and he sees uh, two distinct pieces for each side, so four in total. They we're going to describe today. And I think it's it's uh, it's it's not yeah it's not as simple as just switching places. I think it's more that new issues are coming up or old issues are being revived, and the parties are having to confront things that divide them rather than unite them. You know, before the New Deal, the parties fought a lot about the tariff, and then after a while, nobody cared about the tariff anymore. Uh, it's kind of come back a little bit now when we talk about trade protection. But, you know, those early parties that, like you were talking about, they weren't fully ideological. And that seems weird for a political party, right? What else should it be but about politics? Mm -hmm. But I think it was more about, well, after the Civil War, a lot of it was about which side you fought on or which side your dad or your granddad fought on or which side the 
political machine that helped you out in your town is was aligned with, which is why you had the Irish in New York were Democrats, but the Italians in Philadelphia were Republicans, and they might have actually wanted a lot of the same issues. Things were kind of all over the place, and yeah, well, he's the the sort of golden age he's describing here is the uh, as that system wore away, as the Civil War memories started to fade. And then by the time they fade in the South in the 60s, you know, it's 100 years later, but we get this alignment that we've talked about before. And, and the first the first group he talks about is he calls Free America. And a lot of that is basically the old uh, fusionist coalition um, mm-hmm. that we've talked about many times on here. What, what used to be the heart of the Republican Party? He says, it's the most powerful of the, po- of the four in the past half century. He said, Free America draws on libertarian ideas, which it installs... In- in the high-powered engine of consumer capitalism. The freedom it champions is very different from Alexis de Tocqueville's art of self-government. It's personal freedom without other people. The negative liberty of don't tread on me. I think that's a kind of a jaundiced look at it. I, I think that not, I don't think libertarians are pure individualists in most instances. I think those of us who are inclined to that sort of narrative also believe in voluntary community efforts and things like that but it it's definitely a, a leave me alone sort of party yeah he uh, i like the word you use jaundice i mean he quickly goes into his more or less critiques of free america it's almost like he doesn't even describe free america before he starts the critiques he, he obviously uh, holds this um this square in uh, disdain but i mean the bottom line is like you said libertarian ideas personal freedom self-made man reagan revolution he says, after years of high inflation and high unemployment, gas shortages, chaos in liberal cities, and epic government co- corruption and incompetence, by 1980, a large audience of America was ready to listen to when Milton Friedman blamed the country's decline on business regulations and other government interventions in the market. And you're kind of like, yeah, those were to blame. So <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and we're uh, staring down the barrel of that again. But, um, I mean, free America, obviously, is the... Uh, kind of the Reaganites, it's, uh, Paul Ryan, it's, uh, you know, a little bit more of the, the, the prior, uh, Mitt Romney or Mitch Daniels, you know, um, a lot of Corey Astle in there as well. <laughs> yeah. Quite a bit of Kyle Simon too. It's, it's, it's definitely the part that felt most comfortable for me, which is why reading him describe it negatively. It was like, all right, where's this essay going to go? Yeah. It gets better after that. But yeah, I mean, he, 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 um, he emphasizes also the anti-communist strand of it that kind of united those two conservative and libertarian factions. And that's more than just a, I think he takes it the right way is it's not just a foreign policy stance. It's also looking at socialism and saying, we can't have that here. We can't let that happen here because of how bad it is everywhere else. So it's, it's also a domestic policy thing that could unite a libertarian with, you know, a more traditional conservative because they both look at that and say, well, look, whatever else is going on, we can't have that Soviet system take over the free world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that kept us together a while. But it's also, I, I think it's a huge, a huge part of it. And it's also why some of the uh, the new left is so alienating to us, because those folks just completely missed that lesson. And we'll we'll get to that. Right. I think that's that's the fourth of the four Americas he gets right, to. So right. I, don't, I don't want to skip out of order, but that's... Yeah. So, I mean, that. each one of these, to one extent or another, he kind of shares the positives and then goes into the negatives for, for free America. He jumps right into the negatives for him. It's uh, free America eroded a way of life. It erodes jobs and civic associations disappeared. He, and he, he has 
several paragraphs about this, blaming it on free America. And, you know, you and I have had multiple podcasts on this. There is a tension there in conservatism, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the fusionism between, between kind of the, uh, free market conservatism as well as, uh, as, as opposed to the more traditionalist, but I, I mean, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but I don't think that's the reason civics associations disappeared. I mean, you and I have discussed on multiple podcasts, the, the role of the government coming in and uh, occupying space that civic associations used to occupy as well as just the, the project of the left for the last 75 years has just been to tear down any hierarchy or associations, you know? So, yeah, absolutely. He pins that on, on Reagan. He says the shining city on the hill was supposed to replace big government with a community of energetic and compassionate citizens, all engaged in the project of national renewal. But nothing held the city together. It was hollow at the center, a collection of individuals all wanting more. It saw Americans as entrepreneurs, employees, investors, taxpayers, consumers, everything but citizens. That's not a fair definition of Reagan Republicanism. I, I think he did ask us to be citizens, just like other Republican presidents had been. But to the extent that the city was hollow, it kind of was. But it wasn't because of anything that happened in the 80s. You know, yeah. it, the reason people were yearning for that is, like you said earlier, is because they'd seen decades of mismanagement that was hollowing out those cities. And yeah, maybe some of the jobs hadn't left yet, but all of this, all of those charitable organizations and, and local units were being displaced by uh, the tendrils coming out of the great society. And it doesn't leave room. You can't have both. You, you know, it, they raise the taxes, they take all the money out and they give it back their way. Well, there's no room left for anybody else to to make things work so i think the city was hollow and it's hollower still um and we're seeing the results of that in the way some of our cities are experiencing increased crime and increased hopelessness just among among the people but i i can't really pin that on reagan he didn't build it back up but it wasn't his fault it got knocked down in the first place yeah yeah agreed okay so square number two he calls smart america he says, the new knowledge economy created a new class of Americans, men and women with college degrees, skilled with symbols and numbers, salaried professionals in, in information technology, computer, computer engineering, scientific research, design, management, consulting, um, financial analysis, law, journalism, arts, higher education. These people go to college with one another. They intermarry. They gravitate to desirable neighborhoods in large metropolitan areas and do all they can to pass on their advantages to their children. We've We've read about this group both in uh, in our Charles Murray book as well as in uh, the the British author who, who wrote uh, Somewheres and Nowheres. These guys are the the nowheres. They dominate the top ten percent of American incomes with outsized economic and cultural influence. They like novelty and diversity, and they believe in credentials and expertise. Embrace capitalism, um, and uh, their local identities are submerged in the homogenizing culture of top universities and elite professions. They, they really are the nowheres. They don't, they don't, they don't feel like they're from somewhere. They don't have na uh, nationalist uh, inklings. They're uh, men and women of the world, metropolitan. And uh, yeah, these are the folks that you would that in other books have contrasted to the, the folks who stayed home and stayed in their own neighborhoods and grew up in their own versus these guys kind of grew up. And, uh, it's the great, uh, sorting. They went to college, found someone to marry there who was at their same 
intellectual and social status and then move to a big city. <laughs> yeah. And he mentions how much that overlaps with the free America idea because they're both very individualistic. He says each embraces capitalism and the principle of meritocracy. Belief that your talent and your effort should determine your reward. But to the meritocrats of smart America, some government interventions are necessary for everyone to have an equal chance to move up. And that's the nicest way of putting it. But he's, yeah. I think, I think he looks also pretty uh, hard at his own group, which is this group. Um, and it's, it's what I think it's what we call neoliberal now. It's the, right. the folks who are, they don't need local cultures because they run the national culture. And they don't need local things to prop them up because they got out. That's know? right. That's right. I mean, that's, and there is that, that real vibe of, you know, somebody might, politicians who belong to this group might talk about how they grew up, you know, like how Bill Clinton talks about all the tough times he had growing up and, you know, his, his dad died and he was growing up poor in Hope, Arkansas. But he got the hell out of Hope, Arkansas and never looked back. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he, you know, he, he's a, he's up in Chappaqua now and that's, and that's, you know, people are allowed to move around. That's America. But it's, it's also, it's, it's definitely that he, he lived that meritocratic dream. You know, he was smart, did well in school, was personable, and he got out, got to Georgetown and Yale and all these places. And right. to the, to the smart America set, that is not only the way it should work, but that's deserved, right? I mean, because he got the good grades, got all the right marks, the right credentials. That means you're, you rose to the top and there's nothing that you should, uh, worry about leaving behind you know there's nothing there's no reason that you should be tied to the soil of wherever you came from mm -hmm. like you said these things aren't there are a few people who are all one or all the other and i think we all have to recognize that people have a right to move sometimes you don't like where you're from you move on that's okay but it um to the to the smart america said it feels like they look down on those who stayed like we talked about in the gracie olmstead episode you know, those who stayed mm -hmm. are like, oh, really? What's wrong with you? You know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like, why didn't you go to New York or San Francisco or something? You know, and that's a, uh, it's a, it's a weird view of America, you know, but that's, but it, it definitely, uh, that, that's a, that's definitely a big group, uh, what we call coastal elites or whatever you want to call it. That's, these are they, these are the nowheres of the, the Goodhart book. Yeah. And they, these, these are the folks that I work with every day. I mean, these, these are my, <laughs> these are the folks who absolutely dominate uh, DC. They're the ones who dominate journalism and the news channels and dominate Hollywood and dominate the culture, as you said. And they're the ones who run Washington, DC. They're the ones who run the agencies. And uh, these are the folks who, you know, have real influence and, you know, like, so they embrace capitalism, he says, in the principle of meritocracy, which you just described. Um, and so in that way, there's a common cause with, with free America and, uh, in, in many ways like free America and smart America probably understand each other the best <laughs> mm -hmm. of the four, but, uh, his critique of them is his critique of meritocracy, which is becoming more and more, you know, in vogue educational and professional, uh, educated professionals pass on their money, connections, ambitions, and work ethic to their children while less educated families fall further behind with less and less chance of seeing their children move up. And the view, the view of smart America is of course, individuals should be rewarded according to their ability. What's the alternative, either collectivization or aristocracy. Um, but he, he's going to point out what he calls meritocracy's cruelty in that if you don't make the cut, 
you have no one and nothing to blame. This is where he was, I mean, he only used this, he gave us this line in passing, but I feel like he was probably the most honest uh, voice from the left on this conversation because usually when we're talking about meritocracy, there's just this fixation on the wealthy helping their kids and getting them into school. And I think certainly that is, that is a major element of it. But the bottom line is Barack Obama was able to rise out of nothing and Bill Clinton was able to rise out of nothing, you know, and Reagan, I mean, they had talent. That's the difference, right? Yeah. (laughs) They had either intellectual or other talents and they were talented. And so they were able to rise the real uh, hard, fierce truth of it all is the idea of the meritocracy and these folks, the smart America, they rise out of their town and they leave and go to the, go, you know, go to some other better school out of town and then move to the, to a larger city metropolitan area to get a better job. And they do it because by and large, they're the ones who have the talent to do it. So what's being left behind are those who are not quite as, and he, he'll just say, you don't make the cut and have nothing to blame for yourself. In that sense, I do. I, I have more sympathy for with that argument than I do just the, you know, the rich, like pull the ladder up behind them. Cause I mean, the fact is a lot of liberals pull the ladder up behind them. <laughs> and one, <laughs> yeah. Once they're in a position of power, then they're happy to talk about diversity and inclusion. Um, but prior to that, it's like, well, but not for my kid, you know, or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like the the ones who are against school choice, but all their kids are in private school. Exactly. You know? yeah. So, yeah, he he makes a point about how that sort of attitude is at odds with the Democratic Party of Franklin Roosevelt, which which had its aristocrats at the top, starting with Franklin Roosevelt. But it 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 was presented as and and really acted as for for decades the party of of the working man and working woman. He says the narrative of free America shaped the parameters of acceptable thinking for smart America. Free trade, deregulation, economic concentration, and balanced budgets became the policy of the Democratic Party. And that has been since since the 90s. It was cosmopolitan, embracing multiculturalism at home and welcoming a globalized world. Its donor class on Wall Street and in Silicon Valley bankrolled Democratic campaigns and was rewarded with influence in Washington, like all the folks that you know. None of this appealed to the party's old base, he says. And I, yeah. I think that's the... That's what's really changing everything now is that people, I, I think the party's old base would look at the Republicans and say, they're not going to do anything for me. They're not, they don't know me. I don't know them. But now they're looking at the Democrats and saying, boy, they're not going to do anything for me either. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I look at who's in charge here. They don't talk like us. They don't, they don't live in our neighborhoods. Uh, I, yeah. And that's not, I think, I think when it was 2012, that wasn't enough to make a lot of people vote for Mitt Romney because he looked in some ways just as alien. I mean, he he was one of the richest people ever to run for president, you know, seven houses and all this stuff. And I like Romney. I voted for him, but I I could see why the kind of uh, blue collar guy who's feeling a little alienated by his party's culture warriors isn't going to look over at, at Romney and say, oh, yeah, that's this guy knows what I'm talking about. Right. So that's changed now. I think that's I, I I think throughout this essay, Packer has a, a much uh, keener eye for the faults of his own party. I think he the two parts of uh, conservative America, the free America and the, the real America, which we'll get to next. He, he kind of he has a couple of broad strokes about how, well, they're, you know, they're racist. And it's 
I don't know. I mean, I, I grew up Republican. I'm not racist. You know, I mean, I, I don't see that. Uh, I, I feel like it's it was that it's that sort of broad stroke that you get in a lot of modern journalism. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, the other side. Well, of course, they're all, you know, those people are wrong. You know, and they're they're wrong in a way that's uncorrectable. Um, but when he's talking about his, his own subset here, it's really uh, I think he sees the problems uh, pretty clearly. Mm hmm. All right, so let's go to his third square, which he calls Real America. And he starts it with a quote from Sarah Palin to describe these folks. She says, the best of America is in small towns, hardworking, very patriotic, very pro-America, running our factories and teaching our kids, growing our food and fighting our wars. Real America, he says, has also been religious and in a particular way, evangelical and fundamentalist hostile to modern ideas and intellectual authority. Uh, He calls these the populace, led by Andrew Jackson in times before. These guys used to be Democrats, but these days have become increasingly more Republican, hostile to aristocracy, overwhelmingly white, which seems to be a real focus of his on this, because he says the narrative of real America is white Christian nationalism, the uh, who are threatened by contamination from outside and betrayal from within. So we don't get any positives from him as he <laughs> as he begins the description of real America. We just go right into obviously what he finds uh, disdainful. No, indeed, yeah, he, and he, he does trace it all the way back to uh, to Andrew Jackson and that, that first rise of of populist government. I mean, Jackson was the first uh, of the presidents who didn't come from a sort of uh, upper class background and he's always been he he was the this the re, i mean they renamed the party democratic after him it was sort of called the like it was a jeffersonian republican party democratic republican party after jackson it's a democratic party because it was this was about democratizing and mm-hmm. in those days of course that meant uh white men you know who were free who could vote but that was still a lot more than it had ever been um and jackson you that's what before this current era of rethinking everything, that's how people used to think of Andrew Jackson is that he was the leader of the people who didn't, the landless, you know, the, the or the people with very little property, the people who under the, in colonial times and after couldn't vote because of the property re- restrictions in their state that were only landed folks had the vote. Jackson was the first one elected from those other folks. Although by that time he had quite a bit of property himself. And yeah, he leads it all through the, you know, Jennings Bryan and Huey Long and George Wallace and, you know, this sort of populist tradition. What's interesting about that is, like you said, that that used to be a democratic thing. William Jennings Bryan ran for president as a Democrat three times. Huey Long was a Democrat. George Wallace was a Democrat until he wasn't. You know, uh, this this was the heart of that New Deal coalition that was that, that Roosevelt put together. This, you know, the farmers mechanics and laborers jackson said you know these were his people um and that's sort of what it comes down to that he paints that with a sort of a real broad racial brush although that might have been true in jackson's day he was certainly uh i mean jackson was himself a slave owner um and it was certainly true of george wallace who was pro-segregation and uh, you can't really deny that huey long uh, didn't wasn't really I don't know as much about him, but from what I've read, he was he was preaching a message that probably didn't apply to black people in Louisiana in the 30s because mm-hmm. most politics didn't. But it 
the message was about uh, the common folk having more power. That could in that could or couldn't apply to all races. It's not a necessarily a racist message. And uh, Jennings Bryan, when he was a populist in the 1890s and, and 1900s, was working against a lot of the, you know, the populist party that he started out in before he merged to the Democratic Party actually tried to register black people to vote in the South and tried to get, tried to sort of ignore the race issue, which you really couldn't do in the South back then or in most times. So I, I think Packer wants to paint populism as, as an explicitly white American thing. I don't think there's good historical evidence for it being always that way, although there is certainly instances in different incarnations of it that were. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, you know... Uh, He's he's writing in the Atlantic. You have to say these things from time to time. I mean, that's that's you know to get through the door. So it's and maybe he believes it. I don't I don't mean to be so cynical, but it, it's it's a it's sort of an unpleasant view of of populism, which is really an American tradition, independent of racial aspects. Mm-hmm. I mean, these folks in in a very large part are the one are those who kind of represent the evolution of the parties in that, like you said, this used to be the foundation of the FDR New Deal coalition, where now that uh, West Virginia coal miner, as we've talked about before, is is very much a Republican just in recent times. And uh, so that's interesting. And it seems that his, he does, Packer does have some sympathy for this group with regard to their class uh, he'll say, these are the those who suffered um, lower down the class structure, middle-class Americans whose wealth was sunk in a house that lost half its value during the financial crisis. I mean, he'll point to the invasion of Iraq and the financial crisis as just the failure of the elites, um, something we just, just talked on a, a previous podcast very recently about just kind of this loss of trust, the kind of the, the disappearance of, of uh, you know, elite trust where you have this group of folks, essentially free America and smart America who say, we've got this, we'll, you know, we'll lead this mm-hmm. ship. And, and, uh, we have, we have our, uh, economic, uh, modeling that shows this and that and the other. And, and we've, we've declared victory over the business cycle and all these different things, but yet they're still the same ones who got us into Iraq. They're the ones who, who, uh, performed the, financial crisis and but they're not the ones who suffered the ones who suffered are these sort of small town you know hard-working very patriotic uh white folks but not necessarily all white so i I think again to your point like i think that the white part is correlation not causation um but we see where you know kind of where that comes from but yeah i mean i think the folks that are fighting our wars uh that that's every race i mean the art the army is is has has been at the vanguard of of integration you know since uh truman desegregated the military in in the 40s back before the supreme court desegregated schools and any of that stuff so when you're talking about you know the american fighting man and woman that's that's not a, a monolithically white group that's that's all sorts of folks and you know you talk about who got hosed in the in the credit crunch in 08 who lost their houses i mean a lot of those that was people of, of every race were losing their houses. Now, maybe the people who were ma- inventing these credit default swaps weren't necessarily as diverse, but that, yeah, like you said, that was smart America and, and free America 
coming together and saying, oh, no, we we found a way to beat all of these market things. It's like we talked about last week. You know, um, they they put out this narrative of we've got this. We've got it all figured out. There's not going to be a business cycle anymore. Inflation's dead. You know, we're we're smart enough to tame this economy. Uh, and that, you know, it was okay for a while, but it it all comes around. And, you know, it's an economy is trillions of moving parts it's it's beyond anyone to to get it right every time and they didn't and they made some bad decisions it was they treated the market like a casino and it and it blew up and they're the ones you know that it wasn't their chips really that got lost mm-hmm. you know it's if you lose your house you lose your your credit rating and you lose your job it's hard to get back up and you know maybe now 13 years later a lot of folks are back up but some are probably still feeling the impact of that still dealing with what happened then whereas the guys up in wall street a lot you know firms went bust funds went bust but i don't think it's as hard for them to get back up because they've got the connections they've got the credentials they've and they've you know they've got that meritocratic stamp of approval from start smart america so i i think it's even there some of the ways it's expressed is sometimes ugly i can get the feeling coming out of the what he calls real America about you know the anger at being let down at being sent off to die in wars that don't make any sense losing your house because of stuff you don't understand that's going on and you know people playing around with paper on Wall Street and all of a sudden nobody has money that would make anybody mad and it, mm. and and it, it it yeah trust is destroyed and people who said they were experts they screw it up. And it's easy to, and par- partially justified to look at that from a populist point of view and say, I can do better than those guys. They have all their fancy degrees, but look, we still we still have all these problems. Yeah. So he describes their rage well, and and he'll he'll say that it was the the rage of this group that really was the engine for for Trump to run for for president. He says. Uh, you know, there's resentment over trade and immigration, two issues that uh, I really think those are the two. If, if Trump has any core issues, and he's been on every side of every issue throughout his career, but um, trade and immigration, he's he's been pretty consistent on. This is the this is kind of the group that is where's ground zero for deaths of despair, whether it's from mm-hmm. um, opioid abuse or or uh, suicide and that sort of thing. But all right, let's jump to the fourth square. This he calls just America. That's like justice America. Just America, he says, assails the com- complacent meritocracy of smart America. So even though just America is on on the left alongside smart America, they are not going to see eye to eye because just America does not agree, does not believe in the meritocracy um, ethos as, uh, that smart America does. He says, just America forces us to see the straight line that runs from slavery and segregation to the second class life of so many black lives today in its narrative justice and America never rhyme. A more accurate name would be unjust America in the spirit of attack rather than aspiration. And here is where the kind of critical theory, critical thought comes in. And we've talked about this on prior podcasts, cynical theories and others, but this is kind of the, the kind of the intellectual uh, baseline for for these folks in just America. And he says, the ideas came from different intellectual traditions. 
the Frankfurt School in the 1920s, and you and I have read uh, Marcusa, uh, French postmodernist thinkers of the 60s and 70s, and and I think we should probably read Foucault at some point. You got radical feminism, black studies. They converged in American university classrooms, he says. Critical theory upends the universal values of enlightenment. And this is where you and I would be so, uh, so critical of it, is that uh, critical theory and those uh, that line of thinking, it rejects objectivity, rationality, science, equality, freedom of the indiv- individual, all of these uh, core um, uh, classical liberal values, as well as kind of the foundation of our society, really, American society. These liberal values, he says, are... Uh, in their view, is an ideology by which one dominant group subjugates another. So science is used by the oppressor to oppress the people who are below. Yeah, nothing means anything. Everything is a power struggle. I think it's it's kind of funny to look at it too. Like when the the way that the right and the left hash it out here, you know, when when real America is rejecting free America, it's like. They sort of say, oh, the hell with those theories of free trade and all that stuff. We're going to get back to basics. But when just America is reacting against smart America, it's like, no, we need more theories. Stuff right. that makes even less sense. <laughs> yeah. More, you know, harder to read. you got to read 100 books just to understand what's going on here. And none of them make any sense. So it's just weird that they're kind of spinning back in the direction that, that brought them forth. But they're mad about it now. Yeah. So it, it's... And that's what's what's so weird about this is because it's even you know, critical theory. He said, you know, he he says, and it, and it's true. Unlike orthodox Marxism, critical theory is concerned with language and identity more than material conditions. It's a weird kind of Marxist that's not concerned with material conditions, <laughs> but that's what it is. And he says, in place of objective reality, critical theorists place subjectivity at the center of their analysis. You know, and that's that's always talking about terms, and that's what's so frustrating about it is somebody will come out with a big policy proposal and they'll just kind of nitpick, you know, critique this. Oh, is that word really the right word to use there? You know, I mean, like I wrote, I wrote a piece about how um, kids in Europe were back in school all year during 2020 and American schools were shut down. Yeah. And it was a, you know, it was analysis of what they do in France, what they do in Germany. And, you know, it was, a, I, I did a lot of research. I thought it was good. And at some point I, at the end, I said that America should join the rest of the civilized world and, you know, get our kids <laughs> in school. And that was a critique I got on Facebook. What do you mean by is civilized? Really the right word to use here. And that's what's so frustrating about critical theory is that they just want to talk about words. It makes sense because it comes out of the academy. It comes out of a tradition of criticism, of, li- of literary criticism, you know, of analyzing books and other stuff that. You know, it's if you want to look at a book from a weird angle, okay, that who cares, right? Like it's it's interesting if you're a, an English major, but it's not changing anybody's politics. Mm. But when they try to make a theory out of it, you're taking a theory out of something that does not create; it only criticizes. And all of this set, this just America set, came out of and was created by and was enriched by and, and brought to this level by the liberal system that they're now. Saying, oh, wow, is it really, you know, if, if everything's not perfect under it, doesn't it mean that the whole system is, is a failure and that uh, universal ideas can't exist? Come, 
give me a break. And I think I think Packer kind of is frustrated with the whole thing too. I think he's more of an old school liberal than uh, you know a, a critical theorist or a postmodernist or any of these academic ideas. Although he's you know he's an academic, he, you know he went to all those schools too. But I think he's partially maybe it's generational because because he's a of the baby boom generation who is not really into this as much, but I think he's, he's looking at these folks saying, you know, you guys, you're going so far out. It doesn't make, it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. Yeah. So he says that this uh, is really blown into the, to the wide open and emerged, he says, as a national narrative in 2014 in the, following the summer in, in Ferguson, Missouri, where police um, killed a, a black 18 year old, and that's sort of when the identity politics really took hold. He says the most profound and potentially most radical politics came directly out of our own identity. That's the belief. Not uh, It doesn't appeal to reason or universal values, but instead to our lived experience. While Martin Luther King was demanding equal rights within the framework of the Enlightenment, identity politics uh, wants equality for groups, not individuals. So in other words, equity often amounts to new forms of discrimination because you must redress disparate outcomes among groups. If there is any differential between between two uh, different colored groups, then by definition, that's discrimination. By definition, that's a, a evidence of white supremacy. He says hierarchical position of whiteness over blackness is eternal. What had been considered, broadly speaking, American history including literature, philosophy, classics, even math, is explicitly defined as white and therefore supremacist. And it's part of those groups. So the, like, to your point about language, we've got these new words in the vernacular, systemic racism, white supremacy, mm -hmm. white privilege, anti-blackness, marginalized communities, decolonization, toxic masculinity, BIPOC, uh, you know, um, the threatening features that have come to characterize identity politics and social justice, he, his critique is that there is monolithic group thought, hostility to debate, and a taste for moral coercion. Like you said, you can tell that this is not his flavor either, but mm -hmm. he, like everyone else, frankly, let's be candid, is very hesitant to <laughs> straight up critique because he also wants to keep his job at, uh, at the Atlantic and so forth. So you could tell that he, this is not his cup of tea and he has, he has real problems with it. But he doesn't come out and say it so much as he just sort of plays around the edges and, and kind of points out, well, you can't really debate. You know, it's kind of like uh, based on your identity, that's going to decide, like, you know, whether you're right or wrong. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't come out and call it racist the way he does for some of the other things. But it's, you know, it's what it is. It's it's a it's a race essentialism. One, one line I thought was great, though, is he says, the fixed lens of power makes true equality based on common humanity impossible mm. and that's what sets this group apart from the other three i think is in all of the other three groups you get this idea that there could be uh, a place where ideals are achieved and it's maybe it's far off in the future maybe it's impossible maybe it's utopian but there's a there's an ideal that we're all striving for in which we are all equal and i, I think this just america segment that the postmodernist segment gives up on that says it's, it's impossible it's just it's just a power struggle between groups it's so it's such a it's so dark yeah and, uh, it's a it's a really malignant view of of america and of humanity it, i i 
I get why people are mad might want to get into it because there are injustices, but I, it's really got to, you've got to, I, I feel like you've got to be really an unhappy person to believe this sort of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, you get to the end of this and his conclusions are not even interesting enough to talk about, frankly, but <laughs> um, basically he says we're going to muddle through. But what's yeah. really struck me to the end of this is you have on one side free America and real America. That's on the right. And on the left, you have smart America and just America. But in so many ways, free America and smart America are very much, <laughs> much closer to each other. And real America and just America, even though they are diametric, in, 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 on paper, they are diametrically opposed. Yet, you know, the, you, you just described it as dark and kind of, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's Trump's uh, America is in a decline speech or whatever, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's uh, like real America and just America essentially have the same view of America, which is that um, something is terribly wrong. Something has gone terribly wrong. And it's, uh, it's almost unreconcilable at this point. At this point, it's, uh, it's unsalvageable. Where free America and smart America have a pretty upbeat, <laughs> positive view of both America and the future, and I guess Packer doesn't come out and say this, but what I think he leads us to the conclusion to think that you know free America and smart America have a sunny disposition and view of America because it's kind of like they're the future is very bright for these folks. Who are yeah. who are educated, who have you know left their hometowns, who are smart about uh, economics and so forth, versus the real America and just America, are mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore in different ways, and it certainly manifests itself in very different uh, very different styles and uh, and positions. But ultimately, it's kind of the same attitude. It's these uh, these four groups. Again, I, I, we started this podcast by saying this is. This, I mean, this doesn't capture everyone, and you and I could, could, you know, discuss where do we fall on the spectrum, and it's not quite right for for any of the four. Um, you have a one foot in, in you know, in, in different places, but but ostensibly you have the right and the left, but you have as much, if not more, connection between, you know, free and smart and uh, and real and just, which I I found to be you know really interesting. Yeah, I think there's generational divide there too, and I think sometimes people are talking past each other, but they kind of are saying the same things. Uh, it's it's confusing, and that's any time that the party system is shifting and things are realigning. Nobody knows where it's going. People are going to write essays like this that try to figure where it's going. But I do like where he says at the end. It's common these days to hear people talk about sick America, dying America, the end of America. These same kinds of things were said in 1961 of course, we feel that because we're in it. Um, I think there are parts of our history that felt that way that historians will look back on 100 years from now and say, eh, it was a pretty stable period. I, 
it is that recentism that that self-importance and you know it's like we're always comparing ourselves to rome in various books but it's always the rome that's about to be sacked by barbarians not the rome that was around for a thousand years mm-hmm. i i i don't i think we will muddle through i i don't think this nation is dying i think we're going through some struggles a lot of other nations are too it's the same you know, as as we get more globally connected, a lot of these same ideas are rippling through. I mean, they're dealing with this stuff in Europe, and a lot of these theories don't have anything to do with them. Right, you know I mean? right. There's BLM stuff in Europe, and it's like, what? <laughs> like, this is a this is a pretty American philosophy, American ideology. You know, it's based on our history of race relations. But they're, you know, somebody's going to spray paint BLM on a Winston Churchill statue in London. And you're like, what? What is this? So they're dealing with it too, and nations have have dealt with worse as bad as it seems sometimes and as divided as we seem sometimes i i i kind of agree that we'll muddle through yeah that's a good closing thought my closing thought is to say it's it's smart america above all but then also free america that controls the media in this country and really the institutions and controls the levers of power and it's kind of like the smart america wants to point at all things on the right has the dark, um, you know, everything on the right is real, is the kind of real America Palin view of the world. And of free America is going to point to the left and say, everything on the left is the, you know, burn it down <laughs> critical theory, you know, view of the world. And it's, it's not quite right. And it's, uh, somewhere in between. And I, I, uh, it strikes me that I guess the project of America would be for smart America and free America to sort of, figure out how to take responsibility for the bad stuff that's happened as well as um, try to figure out how to move forward. And because I don't, I don't think a, a ton of answers are going to come out of like the anger of kind of the other parties. But. Yeah. All right. That's Packer. Catch us next time. <laughs>